your attention to the book of Matthew, the 28th chapter. not going to bring you anything new today, and in fact, um, part of this sermon you've heard before, if you've been around here very long, there are some sermons that I enjoy preaching, and I struggle with that because I want to preach what the Lord wants and not just what I enjoy, but I do believe that He would want us to consider these thoughts this morning. Matthew chapter 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and set upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, unto the women, Fear not ye, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and they shall, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the uh, the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel and gave large money unto the soldiers, say, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him to secure you. So the problem was if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner or something like this, the grave was broken into, uh, their life was to be forfeited. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. In this passage before us, we have the record of the greatest event of all of history, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this message, we're going to briefly note the events leading up to this day and, and then what does that mean for us personally uh, today. In the, the Jewish measurement of time, instead of their day beginning at midnight, uh, their day began at, at sunset uh, for the majority of 
the Jews, specifically those in the southern part of Israel. And so the Lord, in talking about his resurrection, said, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there's no way possible for Christ to be crucified on Friday and raised on Sunday, and there be three days and three nights. So, in this message, I'll be using the belief that he was went to the cross and died there and was buried by Wednesday night, which gives you Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then the resurrection. For he said three days and three nights. He didn't say a part of the day Friday and the whole day Saturday and part of the day Sunday, that that made three days and three nights. But for three days and three nights to take place, he had to be crucified and buried by the time of sundown on Wednesday. And so let's review a little bit. On Tuesday evening, of this week of these events. The Lord celebrated the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper there in the upper room for the northern Jews. Now that's important to understand and we can't go into great detail, but the Jews in the north, they started their day in which was beneficial for the priests at Jerusalem because when they when they had the Passover, they could they could actually celebrate it in two days, and all the lambs that are being sacrificed there, uh, they could they could celebrate it in two days instead of one day. And so Jesus, being from the northern, he, he, remember he goes and he, he celebrates the Passover. They've taken their lambs to the temple to be slain. But, but also you understand that when Jesus was arrested, he's going to be crucified at that very moment in time, there were Jewish people going to the temple to offer their lambs to be sacrificed. And Jesus died between 3 and 6 in the afternoon of Wednesday at the very time that the southern Jews were sacrificing the Passover lambs. He's the great fulfillment of the Passover example. And so he celebrates that Passover on Tuesday with his disciples and the other Jews from the northern part of Israel would celebrate that too. After the Passover, they sing a song and they go out and they cross over into the Kidron Valley going over to Gethsemane. And as they cross over the Kidron Valley and the stream there in the Kidron Valley, the Jews had made a way that they would put an aqueduct through the temple and all the blood that was spilled around the temple actually was being washed away going down the hill into the Kidron Valley. And so Jesus goes from there and crosses the Kidron and going 
towards Gethsemane as he would view the stream that flowed there in the valley that came off the hill where the temple was, it would be flowing red. And no doubt when he saw that, he realized that shortly he, the Lamb of God, whose blood can wash away the sins of the world, would be crucified. It's a depressing, depressing scene. No doubt great thoughts of heart entered into our Savior's mind as he crossed that stream, red with blood, and realizing he was shortly to die. They arrive at the olive grove in Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane really means to press out. And he's going to, the olives, all oil would be pressed there. And there in Gethsemane, the Lord is going to ask his, some of his disciples to watch and pray with him. And, and they're not able to. They go to sleep. But it's very interesting, the wording there, that he goes forth from them. He falls down on his knees and then he falls from his knees down on his face, and uh, he's praying. He does that a number of times. He gets up, and three times he's going to fall back down on his knees, and then further on to his face. And there's something happening here that's uh, under tremendous sorrow and tremendous pressure. And the Bible said he sorrowed unto death. I mean, this, this depression that he's in, this sorrow that he's going through is so powerful and so strong that he almost died from it. And remember, it tells us that it was as though he sweat great drops of blood that the capillaries in his, in his brow broke down and when he sweated, some blood came out. It's Wednesday. The Lord is praying. His disciples, who he asked to watch and pray with him, are sleeping. Judas, his familiar friend that he spent three and a half years with, is at that very moment betraying him. It's Wednesday. They come and arrest him. They take him to Caiaphas and then to Annas and then to Pilate and to Herod and back to Pilate. On this Wednesday, Pilate is struggling what to do with him. The Sanhedrin are conspiring so they do not say the exact thing that Pilate might condemn him. The crowd who just a few days before, said, Hosanna to the king, as he rode into Jerusalem. The same people, some of them had to be the same, are crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. They're making him a villain. 
he who knew no sin. But what they don't know, and what they fail to grasp, is that this whole show, this whole event, is being directed by God himself. And the last act of the show was coming on Sunday. It's Wednesday. The disciples have scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Mary is crying. Peter is over by the warming fire denying. All hope is lost. And it's a symbol of all the Wednesdays of life that come into our journey through this world. But Sunday is yet to come. It's Wednesday. The disciples have scattered like sheep. Pilate has three times said, I find no fault in him. Pilate orders Jesus scourged, hoping that that would satisfy the Jews and then they would let him go. Yet they're not going to take that for satisfaction and he will go to the cross. The Roman custom was to scourge a condemned criminal before he was put to death on the cross. The scourge was a short-handled piece of wood with a strings of leather from it. And often they would tie in that leather pieces of bone or glass or rocks, pieces of metal that would bore efficiently tear the flesh. Sometimes they would put a hook in the end of it and that scourge was called the scorpion. The Jewish custom was that the law in the Old Testament was that a person could only be hit nine times with a whip. And so the Jews, uh, wanting to be better than the law, had a rule that you could only be beaten 39 times. But Rome had no custom. And when a person was scourged, there was an officer watching. And when he determined that this guy was about to perish, then they would stop because they wanted him to go to the cross. Those lacerations upon the back would expose muscles. Excessive bleeding would take place. And history tells us that uh, people that were executed died from the scourge. Isaiah writes of this moment a thousand years before Christ was even born, and he said, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah is speaking about the person of Christ and how that vicious beating at the hands of his enemies 
that he was beaten not only on the back but in the face and as they looked at him that day they were astonished because he didn't even appear like a man. He was beaten so badly it was grotesque. On his back they place a scarlet robe on that bloody back. Later they're going to rip it off of him. No doubt the blood kind of tries to coagulate as that robe's on there and when they rip it off it begins to bleed again. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They mock him. They spit upon him. They say, hail king of the Jews. What a horrible scene there at the judgment hall. A man so beaten that he doesn't look like a man. A man mocked. And all those that knew him, knew him as a good man. What a horrible scene on a Wednesday. But Sunday's coming. It will come. It's Wednesday. See him walking to Calvary. The blood is dripping from his body. The cross, heavy on his back, causes him to stumble and they get a man by the name of Simon, who's a Cyrenian, to bear his cross. He gets to Calvary. The Roman soldiers drive the nails into his feet and the hands of the Lord. And at that moment, he bows his head and says, a marvelous, marvelous thing, uncomprehensible. He says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus is hanging on the cross bloody and dying and the events are so horrible so unthinkable so physically and emotionally painful that the word excruciating x out of cruciating crucify out of the cross comes from this moment it's wednesday the sky grows dark from noon to three. The earth trembles. And he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. The holy God who will not abide with our sins pours out his wrath on the perfect sacrificial, sacrificial lamb of God who cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Abandoned not by a father that's contained in a point of history, but an eternal father 
Abandoned not by a father who had no relationship with him, but a father who shared the creation of the smallest atom to all the universe with him. There wasn't anything up to this point in time that they not shared together. Abandoned not by some standoffish father, but a father in which it could truly be said that I and my father are one. And he cries, my God, my God, why? Why has thou forsaken me? Can the father not hear? Can no one save him? Will no one aid him? The sun sets on the scene of Calvary. They placed his body in a borrowed tomb. As the sun goes down, the Jewish day of Thursday begins. Thursday come and goes. Friday come and goes. Saturday comes and goes. Hope has come and gone. Jesus Christ has come and gone. Sadness and despair lay heavy on the disciples. Then came the morning, and night turned into day. The stone was rolled away, and hope rose with the dawn. Then came the morning. Shadows vanished before the sun. Death had lost, and life had won. The morning had come. And we find there in chapter 28 and verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. It was on a Wednesday type of day. My brother's voice came across the phone lines, breaking up, not from the connection but just broken speech. And finally, I understood that I'd never hear my father's voice again in this life. My heart is pierced. I remember walking into the woods and you've heard this before. The sorrow upon sorrow. The sting of death so strong. And I couldn't even put words together. 
But sounds came like the sounds that came from the grizzly bear that we shot a number of years ago. Just moaning out of my heart. But you know, as you get into the Word, and my heart turned. Sunday had come. And I knew that my father and I would meet again. It was on a Wednesday, and I was preaching for a week in Oregon. I was on the phone speaking to the best friend I ever had in this world. The guy who's responsible for this building, Brother Gary Baumgartner. He had gotten, he had, he had lymphoma cancer. And as he called me, or I called him, it was the last time I'd hear his voice. And he told me, Pastor, I don't think I'll be here in the morning. And in the night, lymphoma cancer took his life. I'll never forget what he said in that short conversation. He said, if I knew dying would be so easy, I would not have fought it for so long. And he'd entered into the valley of the shadow of death, but there was no fear in his voice. For he was not walking alone in that valley. And I knew as he and our Lord walked through that valley that he shortly was going to experience all the joy and all the glory and all the confident expectation that came because Sunday followed Wednesday. From the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or our foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Do you believe that? Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ will change your life forever. The gospel, the good news, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. I want you to Go to Romans chapter 10. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ will save you from your sins. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, 
That is, it has to come to a point in our life where we acknowledge Him as Lord, Lord of our life. We don't have to, you know, I mean, He is Lord whether we acknowledge it or not. But the issue is, how do we see Him? And is He the Lord of our life? Have we surrendered to Him? Have we committed our lives to Him? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I want you to, we'll get back to here, but I want you to go over to chapter 4, and verse 25, and it really is a great commentary on this passage in Romans chapter 10. But in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, speaking of Jesus, says, Who was delivered for our offenses, that is, he was delivered for my sin and your sin, he was delivered for the offenses that's been against God in our sinful behavior, and was raised again for our justification. That word for there is not to obtain, but because of. He was raised again because of our justification. And so what I'm believing in in Romans chapter 10, if I will confess with thy mouth and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, it's not that I believe in the actual event, but I believe that I have justification because his death was received by God. That what I'm believing is, is that his payment was enough that he had to pay for my sin, and that payment was enough, and, 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 and professing in him as Lord, if I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That confess with my mouth. Well, that salvation is because he, his salvation was, his, his payment was accepted. And as he did his time and, and, and met the, met the uh, the payment for sin, he was released. <laughs> if we put him in the prison and do our time, and we're released. And he was released because of his payment for sin. So what am I saying? I'm saying you can't be saved if you don't put your faith and trust in what Jesus did, proving that he died in your place. What you believe about your sin and the necessity for Christ to pay for your sin will determine whether you're saved or not. Not only, uh, let me just uh, speak a little bit more about that. 60 years ago, I know that's a long time, as a 13-year-old boy, I found myself in a Wednesday time of life. I always considered myself a good person. I went to church with my parents. But my conscience had been awakened. And the word of God began to speak to my heart. And I realized that in comparison to other guys that I go to school with, that I was a pretty good person, but in comparison to the law of God, I'd lied, I'd stolen, I disobeyed, I coveted other people's stuff. Why do they have it and I can't have it? But that spring in 1963, it came to a head. 
And I knew, sitting in that pew in that little church in Fossil, Oregon, if I died that day, I'd go straight to hell. Straight to hell. And as I wrestled there during the invitation, I remember saying in my heart or thinking in my heart, if God doesn't save me, I'm history. I remember thinking too, why should he promise me another day? And you know, I didn't walk forward and have a conversation with, with the pastor and got saved in that conversation. I, I got saved the moment that I was, that I was in the pew singing, trying to sing, and I got saved that moment I stepped out like that and I went forward not to get saved, but to tell the pastor I got saved. It's a personal decision between you and the Lord. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it did for us. If thou will confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so not only does the resurrection Obtain for me salvation as I put my faith and trust in the work of the Lord. But it will comfort my heart at the time of death. Paul said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? And O grave, where is thy victory? Paul rejoiced in his own Resurrection, when he said, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. If the Lord doesn't return and take us to heaven before we die, each of us one day will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But if we are believers, if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the walk will be through the valley and not continuously in the valley. The lost man never gets out of there. The hope of the resurrection, it calms your heart. D.L. Moody at his time of death said, I see earth receding, heaven is opening, God is calling me. John Wesley said, the best of all is God is with us. Charles Wesley said, I shall be satisfied, satisfied, satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. And I like best what Adoniram Judson said before he took his last breath. He said, I go with gladness 
I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from the school. I feel so strong in Christ. He pictured it coming to the, to the summer vacation. <laughs> and no more does this boy have to go to school. He can play from now on. He was rejoicing in the resurrection. Are you afraid to die? Do you know where you will spend eternity? Paul, talking about his death, and knew that he was in prison, and shortly he's going to face capital punishment. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. He did not say my life will soon be over. He did not say I'll soon expire. He did not say I'm going to lose my life. He did not say I'm soon to perish. He did not say I bought the farm. But he said my departure is at hand. William Barclay, a commentator, helps us understand that word departure. It was used when you come to the end of the day of plowing with your draft animals and you unyoke them from the plow and the burden was laid down and they went out to feast in the field. It's a word used for loosening the bonds and fetters upon a prisoner. Death by Paul was only a liberation and a release from what had bound him. You see, one day we're going to be released from all the sin and the burden and the heartache of this world. My departure is at hand. It was used when the soldiers were out in the field and it came time to break camp and it was loosening of the ropes of the tent and falling up the tent and it was uh, falling, folding up the tent and it was to strike camp and to move on. This is not the end of me. <laughs> we're, I'm just, I'm just, we're just taking down the tent and I'm moving on to another destination. It was a word used for Loosening the ropes of a ship that had been moored to the dock. And many times Paul had sailed in the Mediterranean. And the ship leaves the harbor to depart into the, depart into the deep waters. And now he's launched out into the great deep. And sailed to the haven of rest. Anticipation of that day was part of what Squire Parson had when he penned the following words. He said, I'm kind of homesick for a country. You ever really come to realize that this world isn't yours and it ain't worth having and you're kind of homesick. I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. No sad goodbyes will there be spoken, for time won't matter anymore. Beautiful land, I'm longing for you. 
and someday on thee I'll stand. There my home shall be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. I'm looking now just across the river to where my faith shall end in sight. There are just a few more days to labor. There's just a few more days to labor. Then I'll take my heavenly flight. Beulah land, I'm longing for you. And so belief in the resurrection stills my heart as I turn 73. <laughs> it stills my heart. When I think of my brother lying in a coma this very hour, Not only comforts, as I say, myself, but comforts me in the hour of death of ones that I love. Look at First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four. Listen, what I'm talking about this morning is where Christianity, the rubber of Christianity, meets the road. In First Thessalonians, chapter four, and verse thirteen, Paul said, "But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to go about not knowing concerning them which are asleep." And the Bible identifies those that are born again not as dead, but asleep. That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, that we need not sorrow as those that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the Lord, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and, re and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, shall not go before, or stop them which are asleep. The Lord himself shall descend and from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. How does 73 years in this life compare with and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's no comparison. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I'll never forget during my dad's funeral. In my family, my dad married his brother-in-law's sister. And my, his brother-in-law married his sister. And so brother and sister married each other. My uncle Bob married Aunt Jane, my dad's sister. And dad married Abigail Woodward, who was my uncle Bob's sister. And a strange thing, a very marvelous thing, and a very wonderful thing is that my dad and my mom were Christians. 
but Bob and Jane never were. And at his funeral, my brother and I sat behind my Uncle Bob. And of course we were sad. We'd lost our father. But deep down, as the preacher preached and brought out salvation and resurrection, deep down within our hearts, my brother and I could rejoice. Amen to the resurrection. But my Uncle Bob sat there and he cried and he cried and he wiped his tears from his face and he cried and he sobbed great sobs, his shoulders moving and a deep sorrow of no hope filled his life. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Listen, if you're saved and the person who has died is saved, the glory of Sunday reaches far, far, far into eternity. Look at Romans chapter 15, I mean 1 Corinthians chapter 15. My brother, as you know, had a stroke. When they took the breathing tube out, he actually came back a little bit and spoke a few sayings, but since that time, he's not, he still breathes on his own, but he's not, uh, he's not cognizant. And of course, when he does die, a great part of my life in my homeland of Eastern Oregon will disappear forever from my life in this life. But you know, uh, I have to say that I do love Alaska more than Eastern Oregon, but just a little bit. <laughs> but you know what? Heaven's going to be better than all of them. And so I don't know how to pray for him. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 35. He said, he's talking about how will some, how some men, but some men will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And he said, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except to die. Well, I do know this, that my brother will not be in a better place until he dies. And he says here, he's using an illustration, and he says, But that which thou sowest, thou sowest not the body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God give for the body as hath pleased him and to every seed his own body. Here's what he says. I have a pumpkin seed or a pea seed or a piece of grain. And I, uh, these plants here, maybe they come from a bulb, but if they came from a seed, 
I put the seed in the ground. I put the corn in the ground. And it's a corn seed. But as I water it, and it begins to, all of the, all of that's in that little corn seed begins to dissolve. <laughs> it begins to turn into something else. And what comes out of the ground is first a little shoot like this. And then a stalk. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And ears of corn come upon it. And I said, I say this little, this little seed here, that's corn. But I look at this great stalk of corn and I say, that's corn. Humphrey grows into the ground like an like a old shriveled up seed. But he comes out of that ground with a resurrected body. He's still called corn, but it's completely different. And he says here in this passage down in verse 42, he says, so also as a resurrection of the dead is sown in corruption, but it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. And then the greatest, the greatest of all. It's sown in a natural body, by one man sinner into the world, and death by sin, so death passed of all men for all have sinned. But it's raised a spiritual body, not that it's a vapor, not that it's a spirit form, but what controls it is the spirit. You see, today, today, I have a war that Paul talks about, that I war in my flesh, and that I don't want to do, I do, and that which I should do, I don't. And he said, oh, wretched man that I am, that I'm struggling with this sin because the flesh wants to rule. But when I get this spiritual body, <laughs> no more war. He rules. There's something glorious waiting for us. And then in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, here's the conclusion. When we realize that Christ rose from the dead, when we realize that he saves our souls by the resurrection, him justifying us, proving that he justified us and that he resurrected. He said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, Take a stand. God is for us. God has saved us. Be ye steadfast. Unmovable. Enough of this wishy-washy Christianity. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I think the day of McCarthy, Alaska, how'd that come up? Well, you go down to McCarthy, and once it was, a lot of labor took place down there. There was a railroad came in there. The copper came out of there. But when you go down to McCarthy, Alaska, all that building is now vain. It's all falling apart. And it doesn't mean anything in eternity. 
There's nothing that's built upon this face of the earth that's not in vain. Souls are saved. My labor is not in vain. Where my relatives settled in eastern Oregon, there's a little town there called Richmond. Richmond, Oregon. The Don Leeson were one of the major families that settled there, and then the Keyses from which one side of my family's from, and, and they wa- wanted to know what they should name this town. Well, those who favored the South were more than those who favored the North in the Civil War, <laughs> so they called it Richmond. It was going to be a big deal in eastern Oregon. It's going to be a big, big deal in Wheeler County. It may be the, the capital, the, the county seat of Wheeler County. Today it's a ghost town. All that stuff that took place 150 years ago was in vain. But our labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection. And so... We say, in closing, so what? So what? So what are we going to do with this? Well, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you need to figure out who the Lord is. If thou will confess with thy mouth the Lord, that is, you step out into the aisle and you believe right there in that step and you come forward and say, Pastor, I want to tell you today that I'm confessing Jesus Christ as my Lord and I believe he died for my sins and I'm trusting in him and him only. You need to be saved. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he actually was buried and he rose again the third day according to scripture. But if you're saved here today, let me tell you that that valley of the shadow of death, it's a gloomy place when you know your relatives are walking into it. But the one who rose from the grave is there. And if we can't, as saved people, bow our head, at least bow our head this morning and say, thank you, Lord, for being able to pronounce me justified because you paid it. But there's nothing that stirs this. I don't know know anything that stirs my heart more than realizing that I'm going to see my brother again. I'm going to see my grandfather who I never knew but one of the first in our family to be saved. That I know I'm going to see my mom and my dad. And I know I'm going to see the Lord. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so let me give you just a time here to thank the Lord. And let me give you a time, if you're lost, to do business with the Lord. You don't get saved right here. You get saved when you do business with God. But if you get saved, 
You ought to desire to confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And then we're going to sing in closing. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Will you do time with the Lord here for a second? Will you let your heart communicate with him? Can you simply say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Let's bow.